And so getting initial traction and learning, like we were talking about before, uh, requires, you know, shortest time and lowest cost to getting a product to market. And how you start might not be how you end up, you know, six years later. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is Ryan Fritzke, who is the co-founder of Beanbox. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive in here and uh, learn a little bit more. But uh, so we can set the stage. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the company Beanbox? My background has been in product management, online marketing, and worked at ad tech companies. And then in 2012, made the leap to found a company with my co-founder, Matthew Burke, and we started a mobile app business actually for sharing personal recommendations. So it was a consumer app and we were located in uh, an artsy neighborhood in Seattle called Fremont. And while we're, we were interviewing consumers about our mobile apps, we, were, we spent a lot of time in coffee shops there where they roasted their own coffee, had tasting notes on chalkboards, that kind of featured different single origin coffees every day. All the bags were craft and, and hand stamped. And when we were interviewing consumers, we realized the coffee tasted different from kind of the standard fare we, we would get downtown and at a chain. And so always kind of under our nose as we struggled to get the traction we wanted on the apps, was this idea around coffee because we would send bag, these craft bags of coffee to our friends and family back east and they always loved it. And so kind of the idea from Beanbox was a major pivot out of this app development business. And so Matthew uh, and I are still 10 years later working together and we launched Beanbox out of that prior business. So kind of a, a pretty big pivot we found our inspiration there in coffee. Gotcha, so then what year did you start Beanbox? We started Beanbox in uh, September of 2014. Gotcha, okay. That puts you guys on the longer end of subscription business uh, life cycles then, almost uh, coming up on 10 years here, a decade long. That's pretty, that, that's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, so you had Birchbox and HelloFresh, launching and Amazon kind of wowing people with prime delivery of groceries and all sorts of goods to their home. And that was kind of in the back of our minds when we thought about, you know, how can we give people all over the country this great coffee experience that we were getting in Fremont, Seattle. And so all those businesses that started around 2011, 2012, 2014, were inspiration for us and gave us confidence that there was something there. So at that time, obviously there's some other online coffee companies, even subscription-based. Was there a lot of competition for that back in 2014? There were a couple, but when you talk to people in the specialty coffee space, uh, roasters, uh, they, they, would, they would tell us, 
Look, we've been trying to sell coffee on, online since the 90s. It doesn't work because the cost of shipping is so high relative to a bag of coffee. Our reply to that was, uh, understand, can we just buy five pounds of coffee to test this idea out and see if there is demand and if we can make it work? That was kind of the running thought that you couldn't make the economics work because of the cost of shipping relative to the cost of the product. And so obviously a, a lot has changed since the 90s with e-commerce and also shipping options. That was the background in, in which we started. There were some people doing it. It wasn't clear if they were at scale or e even successful. And, and a lot of those early businesses that we competed with uh, ended up pivoting in some way or are not around anymore. But we really believed that the coffee fundamentally tastes different, that local artisan products that are premium are going to shift to the home in a bigger way. Because in coffee, we started seeing Blue Bottle as an example, really successful in creating beautiful cafes and featuring specialty coffee in those cafes. And especially coffee started to become 50% of cups in cafes. But at home at the same time, for the last 10 years, there was really an emphasis on quick, convenient, pre-ground capsule pod coffees. And so we just fundamentally believed that was going to shift and that specialty was going to make its way to the home. And so our initial take on that was we're not just selling bags of coffee, we're selling an experience where people can taste different coffees from small batch roasters and kind of get a sense of what they like and personalize their preferences and kind of take a journey with us product-wise. That allowed us to create our, our first product, which we called the kind of the Beanbox Sampler subscription and um, get people to try it at a low price point. And the way the economics worked with the tasting format, we were able to make the shipping work. That's how we got started product-wise. So you gave some of these roasters an avenue to get online without having to do all of the upstart, the marketing, everything else. They had to love this. Yeah, so our whole pitch to roasters was, don't change anything for us. We're just a wholesale partner. We'll buy coffee wholesale. You don't have to turn your little uh, roastery cafes into e-commerce fulfillment centers and leave the logistics and the e-commerce fulfillment to us. Just deliver wholesale coffee to us. And um, we started with, you know, their, their, wholesale, their current wholesale rate cards and, and went from there. And uh, all that we asked was that we can use their their branding and stories to help sell the Beanbox experience. So that was kind of the structure of the relationship and why um, it was so easy to bring on partners because we weren't asking them to change anything and we were going to add value kind of in the chain by figuring out the logistics, the format and the economics, product experience, customer service, and all the things that a, a roaster shouldn't have to deal with because they, they're busy, you know, serving espresso drinks in their cafes and 
and dealing with kind of a, a local geographic center where, where their customer base is. Yeah, for sure. Well, then if in the sampler, someone gets a coffee from a particular brand and they like it, are they then expected to go direct to that roaster to buy? Or do you guys then offer the ability to either subscribe to or in, buy one off that roaster's coffee? Yeah, so um, that's where we, we added the ability to, after we launched with that tasting subscription, that sampler, we started to launch the individual coffees. People can buy full-size 12-ounce bags where they, they can get more of any of the coffees they enjoyed in their box. We thought we were more worried about the continuity of the experience, and we wanted to make it great for our customers. And so we felt like, you know, if you enjoyed a sample of a coffee, it would be a bad experience if you couldn't get more of it from us. And so that, that, that was our thinking. And then we, we wanted to incentivize people to, to take that next step within the box. And so that was kind of our mindset from a product perspective. But we know that people have tried coffees with us and then have bought it directly from a roaster. But we're just not worried about that because we're, we're trying to build a valuable business. And in order to do that, you got to give customers a reason to kind of buy more coffees through you. And so that is something we've invested in and continue to invest in that, that experience to make it frictionless. My co-founder and I have a technology background. And so we've always tried to think about, you know, how do we use that in a way that makes transacting more frictionless, whether it's Text to order, we launched text to order first in the space. So allowing people to just send the number of the coffee and to be able to order another bag or two from their phone, or we launched a mobile app. There are QR codes on every coffee bag. Um, so that if you're in the kitchen and you have your phone, uh, you can get another bag and, and we make that easy. And also easy across multiple roasters, right? So it's not not just I have to go to one place by one coffee and another place by another coffee and paying sh more shipping because of it. We're able to, you know, because we're shipping out of a shared warehouse, we're able to have better economics around shipping costs for our customers. Wow. So, so you guys were one of the first to do text to order, huh? That's pretty innovative. Yes. Um, and so I, I know uh, text to order uh, across e-commerce has grown tremendously really since 2018. We were doing this in 2016. So, and it was, again, just, uh, we, we really were just trying to remove the friction from transacting with us and make that experience delightful. I don't think that can be undersold. I talk about this all the time, you know, that you can very much say that a huge part of the success of, of course, Amazon, you know, one click, and then Uber and their frictionless checkout experience was because of that, right? You just made it so easy for the consumer, card on file, you know, interact through the app or the website or whatever, but it wasn't the typical checkout experience that you saw across so many other sites and apps. You made that as painless as possible, right? So, I mean, good on you guys for seeing that early on and, you know, making it easy on consumers to reorder. Coming from online software to having a physical product is just fun, and especially a product like coffee kind of kicks everybody's day off. Yeah, makes everybody happy. Yeah, and just playing with different modes of 
interacting with a physical product in a digital way. So a lot of experimentation, we didn't always do it right, but that has been a big part, I think, of our growth. Any lessons there? Any maybe failures in trying to remove friction, things you guys tried that just didn't work? We usually release things early, uh, so we, we've failed a lot. I think for, for us, um, it's really just continuing to remove steps in all of our flows. Like we realized that unless you have an account online, that text experience could get clunky. If you go from uh, texting coffee to a number and then having to create an account from your phone, it's usually kind of a choppy experience. So we try to remove a scenario like that. We started out with an app that was focused on buying coffees, but we kind of failed to make coffee subscription plan management easy through that app initially, and because we didn't want to do too much once. And um, so, I, and that's something we're kind of still working on today, and, and we're going to improve this year. But we're always uh, trying to add more value and make each flow better. So those are kind of just little lessons. So it's all about trying things out, seeing if it works, getting some feedback, tweaking and going from there, right? You try to reduce the time and cost to learn. I think that's always been our mentality. Even uh, our first website, we launched in two days to test the concept. And we kind of had this rule around, we couldn't hire a designer. We can't spend any money on it. And Matthew's an engineer, and so we were, we were able to put a site up pretty quickly to see if people would buy the product. And this was before we even knew how we were going to ship the physical product. And so I think that's kind of always been a big part of our DNA, getting things out in the world, learning. And if we get it wrong, um, this is coffee. It's not a mattress. Like we're trying to, we can delight our customers and make it right. And so I think that's always been our, our attitude to everything product related. Well, it's great having a co-founder who's an engineer, right? And can take the idea and, and make it a reality without having to scope it out and hire it out and then wait for the delivery, right? Yeah, I, I don't take that for granted too much. I mean, it's, it's been a, essential for us to kind of be lean and to be scrappy. You know, going back to 2014, compared to where the state of the broader subscription economy is now, there's a lot more tools from, you know, everything from marketing to billing to fulfillment, third-party logistics. You know, there's just so many vendors that can help in that space. But back in 2014, that wasn't necessarily the case. So did you guys find that you were having to build a lot of things from scratch or were you able to kind of procure things off the shelf and just make it work for your business? With the exception of email management, we built everything. And a lot of that was because at the time, the current e-commerce platforms didn't have the ability to personalize products the way we needed to be successful. And I, so I think uh, just taking something off the shelf and then using spreadsheets in the background to fulfill orders wasn't going to be a good solution for us. That's where we also really focused on, you know, how do you turn at the time, it was like 20 roasting partners, and so the 20 wholesale orders every week into the right amount of finished product and to fulfill the orders on time. And so 
we built that as we went internally. But even email marketing has changed so much in that time because now there are, there are platforms that are more geared towards even, even products, even better at e-commerce. You know, most earlier email marketing platforms were focused on newsletter formats, so they didn't have the analytics to help you with remarketing and win back campaigns and different type of lifecycle flows. And so I think early on being kind of a scrappy lean marketing team, we really wanted to focus on making sure that we were getting the most out of our list and kind of being able to market in a more personalized way to our customers. And so uh, finding an email marketing platform to do those things was actually tough back then. And now there are many platforms that are geared more towards e-commerce and that can tie actual customer data to web analytics to help you make smarter outreach and uh, communication decisions. Even automate some of those communications, right? Like based on events? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we do the same thing also with SMS. And those platforms didn't exist when we started. So have you then over the years, has it made sense to take some of the things that you've built and then swap it for some of the new tools that are in the market with better features? Yeah, so we, um, our, our core fulfillment platform is still proprietary. We've been able to, like when we talk about inventory management, uh, that's a different system. Obviously, credit card processing and our financial systems are, are separate systems, third-party systems. We've been able to take our proprietary SMS software and actually consolidate that with all our email marketing provider. So that was actually a big win because we didn't have the visibility and the analytics we needed and the ability to grow it fast enough as a proprietary platform. So that was something that actually Q4 last year, we, we ended up outsourcing to our email marketing provider who finally got the level of kind of platform sophistication we needed for SMS and email combined. That's a great story. I think it's a valuable to a lot of listeners because where the state of the tools and the service providers are today, you had to go through the thick of it, right? Over six, eight years of it, of, uh, of the business and growing and, you know, making those decisions along the way. But in today's world, I mean, you can almost set up a fully fledged subscription business in a matter of days or, or weeks even. You're right. And, and there is more kind of customization too with the platforms and the options out there. And depending on the skill set of your team, they, they can help you move much faster and also allow you to, to scale up where, you know, working on some of these backend systems can get in the way of you making progress on the product or on tools that will help you grow on the marketing side. And so you're always making trade-offs with your resources. So if, if there's an opportunity to outsource and scale up a, a component and to not own it internally, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that makes sense. I think where we're, I would say, different is that a lot of e-commerce and subscription businesses will work with 3PLs and outsource a lot of their fulfillment. We have that kind of centrally located. So we have our hands in the coffee and the product. And so, you know, as we curate new coffees, they're all coming into the same warehouse, which allows us to provide uh, shipping price advantages compared to competitors and, and also 
to create unique products that combine coffees from different roasters across the country. I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense in your particular situation, right? Because the product itself, the coffee, needs to be handled in a certain way. You need to source it, you know, all of those kind of things. It's a little different if you're having some widgets made in China that can sit on a shelf until they're put in a box. I think you got to kind of weigh that out, right? How core is this handling and fulfillment of the product to really what my subscription actually is? Would you agree with that? Yeah. We, so we, one factor that we've always had is freshness. So a lot, of, a lot of grocery stores treat coffee that has a really long shelf life. And so I think our whole focus has been how do we deliver small batch coffee as fresh as possible to our customers. And so that takes a different handling of care that is along with our value proposition and making us unique. That's why it's been important to have the operations. But I, you know, I will say in terms of marketing and flexibility and operational cost management on a variable basis, controlling those, controlling the fulfillment allows us to have an advantage because our operations team, and we can make those calls without taking on extra charges for putting inserts in boxes. And so there are advantages that aren't related to our core value proposition, but you're absolutely right. I, I think it just, it depends on your business and what's important. And it, it's also a sequencing issue because when you start a business, you need to get traction. And so getting initial traction and learning, like we were talking about before, uh, requires, you know, shortest time and lowest cost to getting a product to market and how you start might not be how you end up, you know, six years later. Yeah, you want to have that flexibility to continuously adjust to figure out what's working and what's not, right? And there's no better way to do that when you have full control over that experience. Yeah, exactly. So kind of in that thought process, especially when you were starting up, but I'm, I'm sure throughout the, throughout the business, you know, you're trying to acquire new customers. So number one, I'd be very curious what channels worked early on and really what's working for you guys today. But then on the other side of it, customers may try coffee for a while and decide it's not for them. So what things, what tactics are you guys putting in place to keep subscribers and keep churn to a minimum? Early on, we were focused on search marketing. Some of that was my background, but we wanted to find people who were buying coffee online and see if we can convert them into customers and, and get them trying Beanbox. And so um, search allowed us to do that pretty quickly and, and to target people on a keyword basis. And then also on a scrappy budget, there at the time, there wasn't tons of competition on coffee subscription and, uh, you know, buy whole bean coffee online. And so, and, you know, this is back in 2014. And so it allowed us to show up and, and be present to people who were looking specifically for what we were selling. So we were capturing demand that was already out there. And we kind of felt like if we can do well at capturing demand uh, at a lower cost, uh, because it's more targeted, then the next step would be doing a really good job of um, email marketing and kind of maximizing our ability to reach back out to customers to either get them to upsell either a subscription option or to buy a coffee that we're excited about that we're featuring. And so that was kind of the, in the early days was the focus, search, 
and uh, managing our email list in the most effective way with different automated lifecycle touch points. And then at the time, we were dabbling with Facebook. Facebook was growing like crazy, especially mobile. And so it was figuring out how to make that work. And there's a leap in terms of creative. And so we found ourselves working with different people or realizing that we had to focus more on photography and doing different things that weren't kind of core to us as founders. And so that's where we started to kind of branch out and have to think a lot harder about how do you reach someone who's not looking for a coffee subscription or to buy coffee online and get them to try your product. And so that's where kind of you get to compelling initial offers just to get people to try it. And so that was kind of our, our path initially. What are some of those incentives you guys have played with to you know, get people to try the product? It's interesting. So with, with a product that's either fashion-oriented, especially in social, it's easier to transact online and to kind of... The value proposition is self-evident in the image. But when you're talking about something you have to taste, all the offers were geared towards uh, that sampler product and getting people to either uh, try a free month or we did uh, kind of starter kit boxes where people can try two samples at a lower cost, try two coffees, $5 free shipping, because we really believed if we can get people to try the coffee, we had a good chance of getting them to take the next step. And so we focused on that experience. Also, we're fortunate in that we're also a great gift for people who love coffee. And so what we did was introduce, create new gift products. Like we have a world coffee tour that's 16 different roasters, top coffee producing regions across the world. And that was a really unique, differentiated gift product. And so in having unique gift products, we would have these big Q4s where we got a lot of exposure at a lower cost for those products. And people giving the gifts were helping us find people who enjoyed coffee. And so then we would work hard on lifecycle marketing to turn those gift recipients into subscribers themselves. What's going to go there, it seems like it's a natural fit for your business, right? Because people who are into coffee tend to be really into coffee. And if you know somebody that is, this is a great gift for them and a good way to get them to try your product. But what are some of the early learnings you guys had there? Because I get asked about gift subscriptions a lot. And the mechanics are different, right? You're typically one person making a one-time payment for a subscription to give to another person. And to your point, you want to convert them, which means you know getting them to register and provide a payment method and continuous subscription. So talk through what that was like for you guys. Yeah, so the, the lifetime value of someone buying a gift subscription is always going to be different than a, a personal subscription. And so the key is to profitably <laughs> acquire those gift subscriptions. And then if you can do that, focus really hard on all those touch points. So it's making sure you get an email for a recipient when someone's buying the gift so that you can touch base with the person through the product and then also via email. So you have multiple touch points. And then it's focusing on uh, getting the right offer in box to get people to continue. And so it's also, do you reach back out to the person who bought the gift subscription in the first place 
if the recipient liked it and see if they want to extend it. And so there are a lot of different kind of tactics and experimentation in there. I think over the last eight years, we've done a lot of it. I think what we learned is that's a very important rhythm for us for bringing new subscribers in who are interested in buying coffee for themselves. And it's also an efficient way to bring those uh, customers in. So, so yeah, that's always been kind of a core offering for us. I'm curious, do you find that those customers purchasing subscriptions for others are current existing customers of yours or ones that just happen to be perusing the internet looking for a gift for someone? Looking at data, people who are Beanbox subscribers are our best. They're the ones who are not only have a subscription, but they're buying the coffees they enjoyed all a cart. They're also buying gifts for people they know would like it. But in terms of you know, volume of people you can reach, there are more people who buy uh, one-off gifts. And so I think, you know, it's like you got to treat every segment a little different and put a marketing strategy against it. But we have a different approach in each channel to kind of reach the different segments and to think differently about those offers and how, how we communicate. But it goes both ways and it's, it is a flywheel cycle, especially kind of Q4 to Q1. We always see that big growth in subscriber base that's based on the exposure we got in Q4. We were on the Today Show twice last year, once on November November 2nd for our 12 mornings of coffee holiday gift. And so that exposure was very meaningful to people kind of learning about us. Also very helpful to us growing the subscription business. So then on the other side of that, those that are receiving the gift subscription, what are you seeing in terms of the ability to convert them into long-term customers to get them subscribed or even just buy more coffee? We look at that a bunch of different ways, right? We look at whether it's uh, matching emails and addresses we're sending coffee to, to new subscribers. So we're, we're always getting in also kind of, we have a, uh, I would recommend having a checkout survey so that, and we have gift as one of those checkout survey options. So just getting more ways to cross reference that data. But we, we see always been between kind of eight and 12% as the range of gift recipients who turned in subscribers. So that's pretty meaningful as an ongoing focus for us. I'd say that has been an aspect of our business that continues to be unique and we continue to innovate there on the product side because it, it's so core to finding and growing the awareness of our brand. What did you guys see during the pandemic, I mean, you're an online seller of food products. So I have to assume that it was uh, particularly good there for a while when people didn't want to go to any store to buy anything. Our business has grown tremendously over the last couple of years. And there's also a cost to it, right? Because where you're operating in an environment where you have to make sure everybody is staying safe and you're taking care of everybody and you have the right precautions and measures in place to operate. That means operating in a more costly way too. And so I think we look at the pandemic as kind of an acceleration of the shift in behavior that we were already seeing. I talked about kind of what Amazon was doing with grocery and providing a great simple as you mentioned, kind of one tap experience, fast delivery, 
So all goods to the home that was becoming more prominent. We already saw a shift towards specialty coffee. We started to see specialty coffee come to the home, replacing convenience coffee. Millennials were doing more pour overs. And so they cared more about the coffee experience and the affordable luxury of having better coffee at home and enjoying that experience at home. And so that was already happening. And so I, I think we just saw an acceleration of all those trends. A lot have reported, though, that they're seeing sales kind of going back to where they were pre-pandemic. Are you guys seeing the same? And I, and I don't think that would necessarily be intuitive because, you know, there's so many working at home now permanently. And again, to your point right there, this is one of those products that, you know, is a little luxury at home. So what are you guys seeing? I mean, this is uh, one of those things where there are so many macro factors in play, right? So the coffee for, or the market for especially coffee at home has grown significantly since the pandemic. And because of what you just said, there are more remote jobs. Companies that just had offices here in Seattle are now, some of them fully remote and are continue to hire fully remote. All the, the big kind of tech businesses around us here are, have a hybrid working model. So the market for better coffee at home has expanded. What I think people also see, and we're not unique to this, is as the pandemic played out, more brands that had a physical-only presence are now online, and more people brought brands online. And so because of that, there's more competition in ad marketplaces, which has driven the price of advertising up. And so that has an impact on kind of cost per acquisition. And so what happened in 2020 and continues to happen, there's kind of no analog to it. And so I think for all e-commerce brands, it's, it's kind of figuring out, you know, where's the settling point so that we can get better at predicting our growth. And for us, our subscription business has grown over 100% year over year. And so we're, we're feeling pretty good about our opportunity. We've added a rolling out a, a retail product line to kind of grow how people experience and taste our coffees. And so we're very excited about our opportunity and the growth, especially coffee and, and just enabling people to have better mornings. And that's kind of our whole mission and our focus. And, you know, these macro factors are going to play out. We're kind of getting to the point last year where people began to get vaccinated. And so there was a huge vacation binge last summer as people started to escape. And then, then it kind of titrated, right, as there were more outbreaks. But I expect people to s still get out in the summer this year and to enjoy vacations. And so that's going to have an impact on e-commerce. And it's kind of hard to compare that from when everybody was stuck in their home. But to your point, it's a different market. On the whole, for us, there's a bigger addressable audience. And so we're really excited about that, finding new ways to reach people. Sounds like the outlook there is very positive. My last question, and you already touched on it a little bit, is what's next for you guys? Like, what are the challenges in front of you or what are the opportunities that you're pursuing? I know right there you were talking about uh, a retail-based product, but uh, what's next for Beanbox? I think uh, rolling out a, a retail product, our Coffee Gram product line is kind of 
a huge initiative. But the other one is to is to we've kind of doubled down on making our uh, coffee membership and subscription plans really great. I think with all the data we've amassed over the years, we're continuing to shift our product mix and to really focus on high value customers versus volume. And we're we're seeing the impact of that. So, I mean, our job is to make sure that our customers want to enjoy coffee from us every morning and not just dabble and taste coffees here and there and then buy coffee other places. So just continuing to get better at addressing kind of the morning at home is our focus online. And uh, we continue to make progress there. Sounds exciting. So Ryan, I guess if any of the listeners today want to check out more about Beanbox, beanbox beanbox.com, pretty easy to go there. But if they had any questions or maybe want to get in contact with you or somebody there, where can they go? Yeah, I'm uh, easy. I'm just Ryan, R-Y-A-N at beanbox.com. We're also connect with us at any of our social channels. We're just at Beanbox Coffee on, on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, no, happy to chat or answer questions. But really, really appreciate the opportunity, Nick, to talk to your audience and to have this conversation. Yeah, appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us and uh, sharing the story. Always uh, good to hear from you know, subscription businesses who have been around more than a couple of years and have gone through some of the trenches and you guys have certainly done that. So, you know, congratulations on, you know, making it eight years. That's not a, it's not a small feat. So uh, congratulations on all the success and uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Nick. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.